Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the history of the development of vaccines and why modern medicine has failed to discover the cause of autism. Now, other countries had experimented with that aluminum-containing vaccine. This is important. These weren't the only two countries to use it, but they were the two countries that had nationwide campaigns that were very aggressively pitching every mother on the planet to have your child get these three shots of the new aluminum-containing vaccine. So I'm guessing if you were a real sleuth or could travel back in time, I'm guessing autism would start appearing in some of these other countries that were using the vaccine, but not enough to register on the scale like it did in America and like it did in Austria. This podcast is brought to you by Canada's decontamination specialists, crime and trauma scene cleaners. Their objective is to restore safety to an environment in the most professional and discreet manner possible. Crime and trauma scene cleaners. Call them at 1-866-724-0800 or email them at info at crimescenecleaners.ca. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Forrest Moretti returns to Conspiracy Unlimited. He's back to discuss his radioactive book, The Autism Vaccine, the story of modern medicine's greatest tragedy. But first, I want to acknowledge two Star Chamber Patreon donors for their continuing incredible and unwavering support. Denny Bladell and Kirk Schimmel, thank you so much. And I also want to announce the winner of this month's draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Congratulations to Chris Cano of Amarillo, Texas. Chris, I'm sending you a CD of my Strange Planet radio feature, Volume 2. If you want to get in on the monthly draw for Strange Planet merch or be eligible to take part in exclusive monthly online chats and video chats with me, visit patreon.com forward slash strange planet and consider becoming an official donor. 
In the late 1800s, a new disease arrived in North America from Europe and began to claim the lives of children everywhere. Though most today have never even heard of this illness, diphtheria, it would routinely kill over 10,000 children in a single year, more than polio might take in an entire decade. After much trial and tribulation, a shot was developed that helped both those already afflicted with the illness and those who might one day become infected. But the shot was dangerous and many parents refused it for their children. And then, in 1932, a safer version of the shot was developed, but it contained a new ingredient never before tried on humans. Due to aggressive immunization campaigns, children all over the country began to receive this shot. But within a year, a new mental disorder, unknown to even the most knowledgeable child psychologists in the country, began to appear. It affected toddlers and mostly boys. Children were losing the ability to speak and would take little interest in any other humans, even their parents. The autism vaccine chronicles the story of two of these children, one known throughout the world, the other completely unknown until recently, and why modern medicine's attempts to explain what happened to them have so far come up short. After graduating from Wake Forest University with a degree in religion and music, Forrest Moretti plied his trade in the film industry for several years, working on several Muppet movies, four seasons of Dawson's Creek, and many other films and television shows as an audio engineer, editor, composer, and animator. He transitioned into technology as a designer and developer for visual effects software, creator of the popular My Incredible Opinion and Vax Baby video series, Forrest has spent the last few years researching and writing about some of the most enigmatic riddles of science and medicine, notably autism and polio. Forrest has spoken at events and conferences around the country, but prefers to stay close to his writing home in the cab of a 1992 F-150, where many of his manuscripts were composed. Again, he is the author of The Autism Vaccine, the story of modern medicine's greatest tragedy. Forrest Moretti, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Hey, Richard. I'm great. Thanks for having me back on. Had a lot of fun last time talking about uh, Crooked. And I hear you want to talk about the new autism book. So hopefully we can work through that. There's a lot of interesting things to talk about. Oh, to say the least. Uh, the first, I have to address the controversy. I mean, anytime someone comes out with a book questioning, not even a book, a tweet, questioning the efficacy or the safety of vaccines. I mean, there's just an absolute shite storm. Uh, and and you, you hear this, I'm sure, all the time. I've followed you on Twitter. I see the, the, the tweets. Some of them are quite nasty. And, but the one that, that pops up time and time again is, you know, who are you to write about vaccines? You're not qualified, Forrest. How do you respond? Well, um, there's two things going on there. Um, one is they've been searching for the cause of autism for well over 75 years now and are have come up empty-handed and are just as clueless as they've ever been. So y you would think the default posture would be let's get more people involved rather than let's get less people involved. So – who am I? I? I am not a physician. I haven't gone to medical school. I'm not a scientist. I have no uh, PhD. I have no master's degree. I'm an inquisitive human being who has tapped into the greatest wealth of human knowledge ever created on the planet, which is the internet. Uh, a trove of information, which is inherently useful, but for some reason when it comes to medical research, people would have you believe it's a useless tool. But to the contrary, it's an incredible tool. And for someone like me who doesn't have to specialize in anything, I'm not writing a dissertation. I don't specialize in any field. I'm a generalist who studies medical history. I study medical research, scientific research. I have no vested interest in anything other than trying to find out the truth. So with something like autism, after 75 years of zero success in understanding it, I think it's okay for people like me to explore and try and understand where it came from. And in fact, if I had a PhD, 
if I was a doctor, I'm completely unlikely to have reached any of the sort of profound discoveries I feel like I've made. It is a history book, really. But more than that, I mean, it's a thriller. It reads like a thriller. Um, and the question, I guess, is, you know, why are people coming after you? Why not you, I guess, is the flip side of the, the coin. Uh, and and why, why are we in such a climate that to even question now, we'll get you banned from Facebook or uh, you certainly won't get invited on to, you know, Good Morning America. Why is it? Well, there's about two or three different things going on. One of the main ones, and this is everyone knows this, is uh, vaccines form the foundation of modern medicine. Vaccines, according to common folklore, have saved humanity from certain death. Now, they certainly have made an impact on some infections, but not nearly to the extent we've been taught to believe. And to suggest otherwise is to suggest something akin to toying with someone's religion. You know, if, if you were a Christian and I were to challenge the deity of Christ, that would really offend you. You wouldn't be real thrilled with that. If you are a believer in medicine as the savior, savior of humanity, for me to question them in any way uh, makes people uncomfortable. And beyond that, I, in the book, obviously am suggesting that vaccines, in fact, have a great deal to do with the appearance of autism. And that is another no-no that you do not discuss among polite company. You do not suggest that vaccines have anything to do with autism, because if they do, we have a very big problem on our hands. And you see it in the cognitive dissonance and the vitriolic rhetoric that people respond. Uh, if you even suggest uh, a single study, suggests that there's a, a possible link. So yeah, it's a very, very contentious subject because you're questioning the efficacy of the Holy Grail of the religion of science and modern medicine. And you're also suggesting that one of the most profoundly um, prolific and difficult to deal with mental disorders of the day may be uh, inadvertently caused by our attempts to help children. That is not something anyone wants on their conscience. Parents don't want it. Doctors don't want it. No one wants that. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's talk about diphtheria, which is, as you point out, in the autism vaccine, the story of modern modern medicine's greatest tragedy. That is where it all begins. This is the first uh, vaccine, really. Because, I mean, we can't call the smallpox uh, that really a, a vaccine that kind of scratched the skin. But this was an injection of a foreign body into a human being the first time, right? Well, there had been a few. The diphtheria was definitely the first mass immunization for children. Um, smallpox is a weird shot that doesn't really fit under the vaccine moniker very well. Um, it was a sort of a slight scratch on the skin using a bifurcated needle. Diphtheria, as you said, was a, a, a sort of the first time children, as a matter of routine, were given a shot you know, shortly after birth. And diphtheria, just so people know, is not something, you know, many have heard of. And it's the D, if you've ever heard of the DTAP or the Tdap shot, and any of you who have gotten a tetanus shot would have gotten this uh, vaccine because it's always a part of it. It's the D in, uh, dip for diphtheria, which is a bacterial infection, which causes really bad white leathery patches on your tongue and your throat. And for reasons we don't really understand, although there's theories as to why, this bacterial infection became really nasty starting in the 1850s. And children died from it. It was a horrible infection. You know, for somebody who researches all these diseases that we have pediatric vaccines for, you know, measles was a fairly innocuous virus that never really hurt anyone in first world countries. Chickenpox, is another trivial childhood illness no one cared about. Mumps, not many people cared about. But diphtheria was horrible. It was a killer. Killed far more children than polio ever did. And an agonizing death. It was like being choked oh, to death. Horrible. Absolutely. If you read accounts of the way these children died, it, you see why they were doing things. I mean, you feel it. You feel so horrible for these children, for the parents the doctors, they were doing anything. They were burning off these patches with muriatic acid. Just to give you an idea of how desperate they were, um, you know, the mercuric powder and arsenical solutions weren't doing much. So they would burn off the patches uh, with acid. I mean, that's how desperate they were to save these children's lives. So the vaccine uh, was actually originally um, what's called an antitoxin shot, which was grown in horses. And they would give the horses the diphtheria bacteria and they develop antibodies to the toxin produced by the bacteria. And they'd inject uh, those, those antitoxins into children if they got sick with diphtheria. If they caught them early enough, sometimes those antibodies were enough to sort of stem the infection. It didn't give them any immunity or protection. It was sort of like anti-venom you might right. give to someone once they've had a snake bite. It wasn't really a vaccine then. It was, no. as you say, it was like an, an antidote. It's like anti-venom. Yeah, you, right. you give it to them after the fact. Right. But the problem was, was, it was, the, 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 I mean, because this was being uh, incubated, if that's the right word, in, in horses, uh, horrible reactions, right? Yeah, it's, it, it's really where you first see allergy appear in the historical record. They didn't really know what it was, but of course... Uh, they tried to clean up the horse blood. They called it dehorsing, which is like the most uh, uncomfortable medical term or scientific term I've ever heard. But they were working on ways to dehorse the diphtheria shot because it inevitably had um, food, proteins, other diseases, just things from a horse blood that would make its way into children. And so the second or third time children got shots, they, they would have very bad problems. So um, in an attempt to clean it up, they started putting um, something they had used to filter public water systems for quite a while. They put um, an aluminum solution into the, the horse serum and, and the stuff stuck to it. They call it a precipitate. It, it like clings 
to the stuff in the, um, the horse serum. And they used that to try and filter it. By complete accident, they discovered that if that precipitate, if that aluminum substance actually made it in with the shot, it caused the human's immune system to react really strongly. So what they thought was, if we put this aluminum solution in the shot on purpose, then maybe we'll only have to give one shot. Um, because they had actually uh, advanced beyond the antitoxin shot, and they started treating um, the bacteria and the toxin with formaldehyde to inactivate it. So that was, that's where it sort of transitioned into more of a vaccine, when you could give it beforehand in hopes that the body itself would generate antibodies to the toxin. So they inactivate the toxin and then inject that into children, but they started adding that aluminum substance that was initially what we might call potash today or potassium aluminum sulfate. Um, so um, in 1932, that was sort of the fateful year I talk about in the book quite a bit. Um, they add aluminum to this vaccine in America, and they have nationwide diphtheria campaigns running across the country. It's the first time uh, corporate America had ever gotten behind a real big um, medical effort. Um, the Infantile Paralysis, National Infantile Paralysis um, Association, which is what became the Polio Foundation, uh, it was just getting started. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of money behind this and a lot of doctors behind it. And they said, okay, we have a new diphtheria shot. It will protect your child. And it's got a new ingredient that you're going to love. It's aluminum precipitated, which means it has this aluminum compound in it. And we hope that it makes it work really good. So good, in fact, you'll only need one shot and you don't have to worry about those nasty allergy problems. Right. But those parents that had re that remembered the, the agonizing deaths of children, uh, not only from diphtheria, but those who maybe even died because they had diphtheria. And then on top of that, they had uh, a reaction to the serum, serum sickness. Uh, and then, as you say, they came out with the sort of the antidote and that would require sometimes several shots. Uh, so even with this seemingly, you know, this seeming breakthrough, the parents were very, very reticent. They had to enlist some heavy hitters, which is where there's kind of an interesting Canadian connection. The doctor who helped deliver and raise the the Dion quintuplets was was pressed into uh, into service. Yeah, that's right. Um, for those of your listeners who are unfamiliar with the Dion Quints, uh, there were five young girls born near Calendar, Canada. Um, in the middle of nowhere, essentially, at the time. And at that time, uh, five living quintuplets had never survived past 50 days. And these girls did. And they became world famous. I mean, they were everywhere. Their images were sold on spoons, on dolls, on postcards, on medicine, on food, everywhere. And uh, in an attempt to sort of steal... Uh, the parents resolved that this new shot was going to be safe and effective. They used um, the girls in a publicity stunt where they had Dr. W uh, Defoe, who was their, the, the doctor who delivered them and who himself had become world famous. Um, they got the new shot, the new aluminum precipitated diphtheria shot, and they ran their pictures um, in newspapers everywhere showing these little girls getting the new shot, you know, in hopes of convincing reluctant parents that, you know, now it was safe, in fact, uh, to protect your children from diphtheria. And it worked. I mean, these girls were tremendously popular. Their doctor was thought of as the most important pediatrician in the world. There's no analog today. You know, you might think of Dr. Oz has a TV show, or you've heard of Dr. Bob Sears as sort of a famous pediatrician. This guy eclipsed any doctor that you could possibly think of today. He was world famous and everyone trusted everything he said. Right, right. And we should point out at meantime, at the same uh, time, there is this campaign uh, to stamp out diphtheria in the United States. There is one running parallel almost at the exact same time across the pond in Austria. Yeah, that was one of the big sort of uh, bombshell studies that I found during my research for the book. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar 
with the history of autism. It was simultaneously discovered by two child or pediatric psychiatrists. One was in the United States and his name was Dr. Leo Connor. And the other was Hans Asperger. And he uh, was located in Vienna, Austria. And before the 1930s, you will be hard-pressed to find any account resembling what we now know as autism. There are certainly cases here and there, maybe three or four different cases. Um, if you look really hard, you can see some descriptions of children that sort of resemble it. But starting in the 1930s, these children started to show up in two very specific places in the world. Uh, they showed up at the Johns Hopkins um, Clinic in Baltimore, Maryland, to see Dr. Leo Connor, and they started showing up at Dr. Hans Asperger's Clinic in Vienna, Austria. The likelihood of autism, which had never appeared before, uh, besides some isolated cases here and there, sprinkled over a you know a hundred years time, the likelihood of suddenly uh, 200 children showing up in Asperger's Clinic in Vienna and uh, as many as 20 showing up in Leo Connor's Clinic in Baltimore. Within a few years of this shot, these, the two countries that were aggressively promoting this new shot, it, it, it really starts to make you scratch your head and say there, there's probably more to this story uh, than we've been told. Because as far as I know, no one – I've never heard this story before until I started researching it. I never realized this change was made directly before autism started appearing in the United States. And um, aluminum, if you don't follow current scientific research, has recently been discovered to be very prevalent in the brains of children with autism. Now, it's not the only thing that can cause autism, and I talk about that in the book, it, it, just so – People know, I'm not saying this is the only way uh, vaccines can cause autism. There's actually other techniques that vaccines can cause autism with. But for aluminum to be introduced into the pediatric population in two countries in the world uh, around the same year, and for those two countries to start to have what I call epidemics of autism appear, seems too much to be coincidence. It's, it's just too much for me to accept. And you're the first person who's ever made that connection, right? I, uh, as far as I know, I, I've never, once again, the American connection, I'd never seen anyone really talk about that. Uh, and that would have been enough for me uh, to scratch my head and say, there's a story here. Uh, then when I started looking at, into Austria and discovered that they were having very bad outbreaks of diphtheria and were struggling to control them. Um, now, other countries had experimented with that aluminum-containing vaccine. This is important. Um, they, they, these weren't the only two countries to use it, but they were the two countries that had nationwide campaigns that were very aggressively pitching uh, every mother on the planet, you know, to have your child get these these three shots of the new aluminum-containing vaccine. So I'm guessing if you were a real sleuth um, or could travel back in time, I'm guessing autism would start appearing in some of these other countries that were using the vaccine, but not, in num not enough to register on the scale like it did in America and like it did in Austria. Well, that was the other thing that, that people were coming after you on, uh, on uh, Twitter was, well, you're wrong. There were cases before, but as you point out, uh, in in the book, Dr. Leo Kanner, who coincidentally was also uh, Austrian, uh, an, uh, who emigrated, yeah, emigrated, interesting coincidence, emigrated to the United States, uh, he wrote for what at the time I guess was kind of the definitive book on uh, pediatric psycho psychiatry. It w it was something like five hundred pages this volume, and uh, not one mention of of any disorder that uh, that uh, approximated the you know the symptoms of of autism. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. And in fact, it was so rare that he didn't include it even right. in later editions. Ah. Like he had written a, a volume two or a, I'm sorry, a second edition. And, and as far as I can remember, it wasn't in that one either. It was still so rare. Now keep in mind, he was at the premiere 
um, child psychiatric clinic in the country, if not the world. He was considered the preeminent childhood psychiatrist in the United States. From the time he initially saw the first case of autism, 1935, till the time he published the paper in 1943, 44, he had eight years to look for other cases at the preeminent facility in the country. And you're going to tell me in eight years time, when he published the paper, he said, I've never, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. I've never seen anything like this. This is something entirely new. And I feel compelled to mention it in this paper because I've never seen anything like it. We'll take a quick time out. And when we come back, we will talk about uh, patient zero in the United States. Uh, and then uh, another, uh, perhaps uh, another autism case in Canada. And uh, we mentioned, we alluded to who that might be a little bit earlier. Back with more of my conversation with uh, Forrest Moretti, right here on Conspiracy Unlimited. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland, chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Industrial hemp was recently legalized as part of an omnibus agriculture bill in the United States. Now, I've talked about the cultivation of this amazing and versatile plant, hemp, and how it's inextricably linked to human civilization. Now that hemp is legal again, after nearly 80 years, you're likely to hear more about CBD oil, which is produced from the hemp plant. CBD oil is truly a life oil and its properties can help us on our journey towards a longer life and a healthier lifestyle. CBD oil from Ancient Life Oil is the highest quality, non-psychoactive grade of CBD oil available on the market. It's American made from gold grade organic hemp and super critically CO2 extracted in a pharmaceutical lab. Get your little bottle of big relief from ancientlifeoil.com ancientlifeoil.com. I take an eyedropper under the tongue every day and all my stress and anxiety are gone. Ancient Life Oil, the Ferrari of CBD products. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Forrest Moretti, the author of The Autism Vaccine, The Story of Modern Medicine's Greatest Tragedy. So 1935, uh, Dr. Uh, Kanner is, is uh, or meets really, I guess, patient zero, right? This is Alfred? Yeah, yeah. Most people have heard of Donald Triplett, who is considered uh, sort of informally patient zero, uh, the first person ever described with autism. But actually, uh, Connor didn't see Donald Triplett in his uh, clinic until in 1938. The first child he saw was a, a kid who, who we've never been able to figure out who it is. His name was Alfred L. And his mother was a psychologist. And she'd lived in Baltimore, and she brought him to Dr. Connor because she could not figure out uh, what had happened to her child. So Alfred um, was really patient zero, even though most people um, think of Donald Triplett as patient zero. But um, Alfred, you know, was exactly like um, many children you've heard of today. He 
He preferred aloneness. He didn't want to um, hang out with other children. He got really upset if routine or patterns were disrupted. Um, he had an IQ of about 140. And if you're unfamiliar with the scale, that's very high. That's gifted. So it was so odd to Dr. Connor that this child, who clearly had some mental, de- mental deficiencies, also had an incredible IQ. I mean, it was really, really confusing to any uh, psychiatrist of the day. Because back then, uh, children with mental disorders had very poor IQs, and he just couldn't make sense of it. So a few years later, uh, Donald Triplett, whom many people have heard of, um, who is described as patient zero in Dr. Connor's initial autism publication, he shows up and had very, very similar characteristics, the aloneness, the um, obsession with routine and pattern. Um, so... Yeah, they those two sort of show up, and then it starts to be more and more. And meanwhile, like I mentioned, in Austria, Dr. Hans Asperger is also seeing lots of children show up in his clinic with similar uh, conditions. And why did they call it autism? Well, uh, it, it was a symptom. Autistic was a symptom used to describe children with schizophrenia. And it meant aloneness. It meant isolation. Now, not all children with schizophrenia showed this, but it was a a term that had become in vogue around that time to describe someone who preferred to be alone. And that was the only thing they could come up with. Um, They had never seen it before. Uh, Dr. Hans Asperger was pretty clear. He said, I'm going to call this autism, essentially. Connor wasn't so sure. He used autistic in a sort of descriptive sense. Um, And initially, people in the U.S. started referring to it as Connor's syndrome. But once things sort of started to pick up steam, people eventually settled on autism and autistic, and they dropped Connor's syndrome. Meanwhile, up in Canada... Canada's darlings. I mean, they were bigger than Elvis, bigger than the Beatles, the Dion quintuplets, yeah. uh, who, who Dr. Defoe, as you say, in his, this publicity stunt in order to encourage parents to vaccinate, he vaccinated all five of the Dion girls, and one of them uh, suddenly takes ill. Tell me about her. Yeah, it was, she was Emily Dion, and um, she from what I can tell, and I've done as much as thorough of research as I could find every book I could find on the Dion Quince. She began to have what the nurses politely referred to as fainting spells. And, uh, it sounds like what we would call absence seizures nowadays, which are these, um, staring episodes where you, if you don't know what to look for, you wouldn't even know that's what's happening, but it's a seizure. There's not violent body convulsions or anything it's it's almost catatonic they just zone out yeah and uh she started having those but the health of these children was paramount to dr defoe's success so you can imagine he wasn't going to allow anything to get out uh, that something was wrong with one of the children and as i did the research you start to see some other intriguing symptoms mentioned about Emily. Um, Her sisters will say that um, they'll use terms like she withdrew within herself. She she became, uh, I don't know if they use the word isolated, but something akin to isolated. She started collecting things and, and putting things in her pocket. There were some things when you start to look at it, it begins to feel suspicious that um, maybe, you know, autism is a spectrum and maybe she fit, actually fit somewhere along the spectrum. She had other issues we would find out later. Um, she became left-handed out of five girls, identical uh, quintuplets. She was the one left-handed girl. She had trouble writing. Um, her, You can look at handwriting samples and see that she clearly um, – had what some people would call dysgraphia, which is a a difficulty with communication and written language. Um, There's a lot of 
signs, once you know what to look for and you start reading about her, it, it starts to make you feel like that perhaps Emily would be placed on the spectrum. Right. It's, I mean, it's, it's not a slam dunk like, like Alfred or, or um, Daniel, but it's highly suspicious. Yeah, and, and I, I, there's actually some footage taken of the girls um, probably about two years old, which would have been a few months after that shot. And um, there's a girl rocking. She's sitting on the floor. The other girls are playing, and there's a girl doing this characteristic rocking motion, which any parent uh, who has a child with um, autism has seen. And there's another clip in that in that film of a girl doing a sort of an obsessive spinning motion. Now you might say, well, every child spins. That's, that's just common. But when you see the way she spins, uh, it does make you wonder. I don't know if that's Emily or not. I, there, the, the film is too grainy for me to identify which twin it is. And, and they do look very, very similar. Um, it's, it's difficult, but seeing those clips, seeing the descriptions of Emily it, it starts to make you feel like, yeah, there, there was something wrong with her. And in fact, you know, she, she definitely started her absence seizures, uh, became worse as she grew older. And, and I follow her life arc, uh, in the book because it's, it's quite traumatic. Right. Now at that time in the 1930s, we had these institutions springing up all over America uh, you had all sorts of uh, mental ailments. I think you, in the in the book you referred to it as it was called Americanitis. They <laughs> thought that 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 people were simply not able to cope with modern living, electricity, and moving pictures, and and so yeah. forth. But th- but they also blamed genetics, right? Which gave they thought you know these these children are the product of of uh, mentally deficient, uh, morally deficient parents and and uh that's that's why they are the way they are yeah at the time mental disorders were assumed to be genetic and that's where the whole eugenics movement came from it was an attempt to prevent uh, genetically deficient people from procreating because they would just create more children with mental disorders which would then procreate and and it would you know muddy the water it would ruin the gene pool so these forced um, sterilizations became popular to help control the gene pool. But interestingly, um, the parents of the children that Connor had seen in the United States were so remarkably similar, that's why it was initially assumed that autism was genetic. These parents were doctors, chemists, attorneys. Um, I think I think it was eight out of the 11 parents uh, of the initial 11 were mentioned in the who's who guide of, you know, outstanding Americans. So there goes that, uh, that theory, the genetics theory. <laughs> well, it was, they thought there had to have been something similar to them because these are, these people are so smart. They're such good citizens that maybe there's something genetic about being very good and very smart. And what happened uh, is that actually transitioned to, well, maybe the mothers and fathers to a limited extent, maybe they're so smart that they don't know how to love their children. They don't know how to be involved with them. They're detached. They're what they called refrigerator mothers. And so what initially started as a genetic or hereditary um, source for autism became this strange notion that autism was caused by parents who didn't love their children thoroughly enough and their children withdrew from them. And this was not a fringe theory. This sounds crazy in retrospect, but this was the standard explanation for autism. Uh, for 20 or almost 30 years, you know, people would go uh, on TV shows. They would write books about it, uh, about how mothers needed to go to counseling to learn how to love their children better in order to perhaps pull their child out of this autistic state. So you can imagine the pain any parent feels upon having a child that doesn't want to be picked up or that doesn't want to look at them. Now add on the fact that the medical 
establishment is telling you your child is like that because of you can't love them. Uh, it, it's just probably one of the top one, if not not top five, if not top one most horrible things right, right. Uh, Madison has ever perpetrated upon a parent. Absolutely. Um, you have another interesting theory, which I, I, I think, it, to me, it just resonates. And, and that is that, that educated uh, uh, people tended to be or tend to be sort of early adapters, adopters when it yes. comes to something new. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I, I remember reading about this in technology. You know, if you look at the adoption curve uh, of any new technology, um, definitely professionals, intelligent people, educated people are going to be on the, the cutting edge of this curve. And uh, it, to me, it seems fairly obvious that the, these people um, whose children were showing up. Now, just so you know, this clinic in Johns Hopkins was not like Beverly Hills for children. This wasn't where rich people went if they had the money to afford it. There were all sorts of uh, classes there. There were the indigent, the poor. I mean, everyone was there. So people didn't end up just there just because they had money. Um, so my theory is these chemists, scientists, uh, psychologists, attorneys, they read the papers. They saw the admonitions from health officials saying, you need to get your children protected from diphtheria using this new shot. And because they considered them their colleagues, they believed them. They accepted them at face value. Whereas naturally, um, you know, a someone with less intelligence is going to be less trusting. This is This is not my theory. This is you know, there's a book called The Hive Mind that talks about this. Um, societies with lower IQs are less trusting, and there's less social cohesion because of it. So to me, it seems fairly obvious these people were early adopters of this vaccine, and um, their children showed it. Do we, do we know, for example, that Alfred and Daniel did, in fact, have the diphtheria vaccine with the aluminum? I don't know that. I've been looking and looking and tried to confirm it, uh, but I don't have Donald's vaccination record, and uh, I don't have Alfred's. Given the the social echelons they they moved within, given the national diphtheria campaigns running at the time, I, I can assume they did. It would be as unlikely as a child today were to be unvaccinated. You know, there are children today who are unvaccinated, completely unvaccinated, but they're rare. You know, they're, they're, it may be less than 5% of children, I'm guessing 3%. So I would guess there's a 97% chance that they did. I would be very surprised if they didn't. The other uh, interesting uh, or puzzling aspect of this new mental disorder called autism in the 1930s uh, was... It, it 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 afflicted mainly boys, almost entirely boys, right? Yeah, there there are a few things about it that really make it stand out. If you go back through historical literature and you were to say, well, autism has always existed, we've just never noticed it before, that's a, a ridiculous assertion. And one of the reasons is it has a tremendous prevalence for boys, four to one. Some people may say three to one. And there's nothing like this um, besides maybe testicular cancer, you know, some inherently male uh, or female disorder, cervical cancer for females. There's nothing like this. Um, so that was one of the initial things that really confounded those people studying it. It's, it's like male and female brains are the same. Why would this only affect boys? In fact, uh, Hans Asperger assumed that it was only boys because – the original 200 that he had seen, uh, there were zero girls. It was all boys. Out of the original 11 Connor saw, it were eight boys and three girls. So um, that was one of the things that made it significantly different. Another that I sort of discovered through my research, and I've never heard anybody talk about this, 
But at the time, neurological disorders like the Americanitis you mentioned, they were all considered degenerative, chronic disorders that eventually would kill you. These children were getting better, not all of them, but some of them were getting better. Over time, they would develop language skills. Some of their idiosyncrasies would lessen. And the, the doctors were completely confused by this because neurological disorder was a degenerative condition like we might consider Alzheimer's or Parkinson's today, where once it starts showing up, it feels like a long, steady decline um, that everyone dreads. These children were getting better, and, and it, it just really threw them for a loop because they'd never seen anything like that. Um, so those are the main um, two things that that made it different than anything they'd ever seen. It, they'd never seen a prevalence for males in neurological disorders like that, and they had never seen a neurological disorder where there was a significant um, injury, if you can call it that, a significant decline all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and then over time, there was healing, there was recovery. And we should also point out that that following the success, quote, end quote, of the diphtheria vaccine, then they set their eyes on some other uh, uh, diseases like tetanus and lockjaw. I'm sorry, tetanus and, and uh, the whooping and cough. Pertussis, uh, per- yeah. Yes, uh, the whooping cough. Yeah, whooping cough. Yeah, autism remained fairly uncommon until the last 20 or 30 years. They added another aluminum-containing vaccine in 1938, which was for tetanus. No one, No one was really... Uh, concerned about tetanus. Even if you lived on a farm and your children ran around barefoot all day, um, it wasn't, it just was rare. It was so rare. They just didn't worry about it. And so they added it uh, to the diphtheria shot because they knew parents weren't going to purposefully inject their children with three more shots for something they didn't care about. And then whooping cough was definitely a concern. That was not a, a, a trivial disease. That was a horrible disease. And uh, the vaccine for that had given them fits for decades. They had been trying to do it. And they finally came up with something that had a – it works okay. It's not great. Uh, so they added that to the shot. And that's how we have the DPT shot or now what we call the DTaP shot because they, they had to modulate the uh, pertussis component of the vaccine because it was too dangerous. Anyway, that uh, DTaP shot uh, was – lasted along they added polio in the 1950s and then in the 60s they added measles um and then throughout the 70s they added mumps and rubella you really don't see autism take an uptick until a little bit in the 70s um, especially once they combine the measles mumps and rubella shot into mmr and i'll talk about that in a second and then in the 2000s uh after 1986 when they basically uh, made it law that you couldn't sue a pediatric vaccine manufacturer, the number of aluminum-containing and essentially all different types of pediatric vaccines exploded. And you went from someone like me, who was born in 1971, and I might have had five or six shots as a kid, to you started getting up into the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Um, so it's really not until 2000s uh, the 1990s and the 2000s, where you really see this exponential explosion um, in autism. So to suggest that improvements in diagnosis have caused the explosion of diagnosis has been disproven. Uh, this is not something anyone who seriously studies the disorder would ever say. Uh, you might hear it occasionally, but anyone who says that hasn't looked into it. Everyone knows that's not. It may explain a, com- a component of the rise, but nothing uh, like what we've seen. Let's let's spend the last few minutes talking about how aluminum might cause something like autism. Okay, yeah, aluminum uh, aluminum hydroxide, which is the current um, ingredient they put in vaccines, not all of them, but many of them, to make it work better. It's a neurotoxin. They didn't know this at the time. It has a propensity for destroying neuronal cells in the brain. Now the question is, how does it get to the brain? And there's so little of it. You know, why does it matter? Because there's so little. It can't really hurt the brain that much. Yeah, we're talking about micrograms, really. Yeah, tiny amounts. So uh, this is a theory that's 
thoroughly explained in the book, but I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up in, in a minute or two. The aluminum hydroxide gets um, consumed by white blood cells in your body because it's trying to protect you from it. It's, it's a very nasty ingredient. Unfortunately, the white blood cells in your body um, don't just float around randomly, but they get signaled to go to certain places. When you get a cut in your body, you, you, the cut signals for help from white blood cells, obviously, to stem off infection. But what's recently been discovered is your brain also signals for help from those white blood cells. So if you get a cut on your leg or you get an injection on your leg, your body signals for help from white blood cells. With an aluminum-containing vaccine, those white blood cells may end up in your brain because of that signaling mechanism. There's two other things which cause this same uh, signal to occur. If you get a microbial or let's say a pathogen infection in your body, uh, bacterial, viral, fungal, your body senses it and it tries to stem off the infection, but your brain, again, signals for help from white blood cells. So you have two things associated with vaccines that are causing your brain to ask for help from the white blood cells. The third thing uh, which is the most horrible thing, is fear. And there's a very particular component of the brain in the brainstem, which is, I believe is the epicenter of autism. And when you are very afraid, in particular when you're being immobilized or restrained, which is the most severe kind of fear you can instill on someone, is when they have no control, they have no ability to escape, and you pen them down, the brainstem signals for help and it asks for white blood cells to come to the rescue. So once again, after vaccination with an aluminum-containing vaccine, you've created the tissue injury that causes the signaling. You've created the pathogen invasion, which causes the signaling. And for children who are around 12 to 18 months old, where restraint and immobilization are often necessary, you've certainly created the fear and the stress response that causes these white blood cells to go to the brain. And real quick, if I can just say, the reason I believe boys suffer from this more than girls is because the stress response in girls is significantly different than boys. This is the single biggest gender differentiator besides childbirth and pregnancy. It's this proven, uh, this is not temple hat theory, they know this. So when boys are immobilized and restrained, they create that signaling mechanism. When girls are immobilized and restrained, they create a different chemical reaction. It doesn't ask for white blood cells to come to the brain like it does in boys. So autism and other neurological injuries associated with vaccination occur. They peak around the 12 to 18 month year old mark, which to me is the peak of fear, the peak where immobilization and restraint are required. Right, because you don't have to restrain an infant. He has no prior experience. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not anticipating. And a four-year-old, you can promise them a milkshake, you know, if they don't cry. Right. But a 12 to 18-month-old, you can't reason with them, and they know what's coming. Ever since Dr. Andrew Wakefield was uh, just lambasted and stripped of his medical license and made an absolute pariah for that, that uh, study that was published in The Lancet, and then they retracted it, and uh, now anyone who dares make a connection between autism and vaccines is similarly, you know, ostracized and, and, uh, or, or worse. Uh, and we, we keep being told study after study after study shows no connection between vaccines and autism. What are they missing? Why, why, why are they not seeing this connection? Are they not looking for it? Well, uh, funny enough, the Wakefield study flat out denied the connection. They said the association between uh, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and the syndrome described, described meaning autism, uh, we did not find an association with it. So the one study that was you know, retracted for it flat out said there was no association. The studies that say there are no association are all epidemiological studies looking at the MMR vaccine. That's the only one they look at. And unfortunately, epidemiological studies are the weakest science out there. They're accountants in lab coats. And it is so easy to manipulate the inputs on these studies 
to get the output you want. If you've ever done any work on Excel, you know, you have all these different columns and cells that you can tweak the numbers on. And from what I've read about them, there are four uh, main studies that say the MMR vaccine and autism are not associated with them. And every one of them um, has some fishy manipulation of the incoming data. Like, for instance, I think one of the studies will filter out private school children. And they don't say why, but private school children tend to have the higher rates of unvaccinated children. So it appears that they are afraid that those numbers would drag uh, the result in a direction they don't want. So for reasons unknown, this epidemiological study says, okay, we're not including private school children. We're only looking at public school children. So uh, as I mentioned, they've only looked at the MMR vaccine and they've only ever studied one ingredient, which is thimerosal, the mercury-like uh, substance, um, which I personally don't believe has a lot to do with autism and it may have never had anything to do with autism. I'm not sure. I haven't studied it very much. They've certainly never looked at other vaccines and the government will admit this. I'm not making this up. The government will flat out say, we cannot say, for instance, if the DTaP shot and autism are associated because we've never looked at it. Hmm. And in terms of fudging the data that you alluded to, course, we had that uh, whistleblower from the CDC, Dr. William Thompson, yes. uh, who, who alluded to that. Wouldn't it be wonderful for him to be subpoenaed before a congressional hearing? It would. Uh, it, it would. Um, th- there needs to be a lot more of that. Mm. And the fact of the matter is, is politics follows culture. And the reason all of this is becoming more prevalent, is becoming more contentious, is because, because more parents are speaking up. It's not because more politicians are speaking up. It's because more parents are speaking up. So to me, those are the people I try to reach. I'm glad there are people in, in all segments of the spectrum of advocacy, I'll say. Uh, there are political movements, and I'm there are people who do protests and rallies, and people who go lobby congressmen and congresswomen and representatives. And there, there's all these different pieces of the puzzle that need to happen. Uh, to me, the source is cultural change, and and that's what we're seeing most of all now. Parents are are keen to what's going on, and it's being reflected in, in the vitriolic rhetoric you see online. Well, it is the it is certainly being uh, the attack on uh, so-called anti-vaxxers is being. Uh, ratcheted up. We now have jurisdictions where there are no more exemptions uh, based on religion or conscience. For example, in New York with the, these measles outbreaks, you must be uh, vaccinated. They are uh, they are deplatforming anyone who speaks out against uh, vaccines. Where is this leading, Forrest? Well, unfortunately, I believe it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, I, I would. There are victories here and there. Are people working very hard uh, to stem the, the the bleeding of these losing our our personal liberties, and and some of these laws are just completely insane because they are forcing children to get vaccines which don't prevent the spread of disease. You know, they have nothing to do with herd immunity. They have nothing to do with communicable diseases or infection or protecting immunocompromised people. Um, and many of these laws don't distinguish between that. They just force children to get all vaccines under the guise of protecting vulnerable populations. So where is it going? I believe um, we will continue to see our freedoms eroded. Um, and I believe at some point, uh, there'll be a tipping point where s- so many people get so mad um, that there will be political turmoil Um, but I think this tit for tat that you see right now is going to continue to get worse until we reach that tipping point where so many parents get so mad, um, that there's some sort of either electoral, uh, change where people who come out and say, I'm in favor of mandatory vaccines, they just get voted out of office, uh, or, uh, something else. I don't know. Some sort of, uh, balkanization of the country. I know this is uh, crazy talk, but I, I feel like personally vaccines are the tip of the spear in, um, in a lot of belief systems. You know, the right 
to control what medical procedures are performed on your body by force, uh, you know, by a government is so um, primal to, you know, encroaching on your personal liberty. I don't know how a people who believe in freedom can stand uh, to suffer through that. So I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't think it's going to be pretty. I'll, I'll say that much. Well, in the meantime, we have the vaccine or the autism vaccine, the story of modern medicine's greatest tragedy. Can we still get the book on Amazon, Forrest? Yeah, it's still on Amazon, digital and print. I'm, uh, the audiobook should be online anytime. Uh, you can go to theautismvaccine.com and buy it through my personal store in case Amazon uh, bans it, which is always a possibility. Forrest, thank you once again. You're a courageous man. Thanks for having me, Richard. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back to fill you in on what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the star chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, one of the fiercest climate change skeptics on Twitter presents historical data he says destroys the climate change models. You know, the worst floods were in the 1920s and the 1930s. The floods we've been having recently are nothing compared to those. They're tiny little floods compared to those massive floods from back then. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.